Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. One of the top trending hashtags on Twitter this week was hashtag if schools reopen now. And if you follow this hashtag, you probably saw most of the folks tweeting about it took a rather dim view of reopening. One of the top tweets we saw was a gif of Lord Farquaad, that's the bad guy in Shrek, saying, some of you might die, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. Now, as lighthearted and irreverent as those tweets were, there's more than a kernel of truth there. The public is nervous about the prospect of sending kids back to school. Indeed, surveys have shown that as many as 60% of parents aren't likely to send their kids to schools, even if schools were to open their doors this fall. So the million dollar question is, is it possible for schools to reopen safely this fall? On this episode, I pose that question to John Bailey. He's an advisor to the Walton Family Foundation, a visiting fellow here at AEI, and a friend of the show. And coincidentally, he had a hand in creating the national strategy for pandemic influenza back in 2005. John, welcome back to the report card. Oh my gosh, it's so great to be with you. So John, let's start off with the question of the day. One word answer. Can schools reopen this fall? Yes, but will they? All right. Now let's say more. I know there's a pregnant pause there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's possible for schools to reopen and they can do that safely. And we've had CDC guidance since May. We've had, frankly, a test run for how schools can reopen without triggering second waves of infections in Europe. And so what we've known is that with the schools in Europe, when they've put in these physical distancing and they had kids washing hands and they had masks for teachers, that it did not trigger second waves and resurgence of the, of the virus. So I think to your question, it's possible to reopen schools safely, but I'm not sure it, it will happen. And it's for two reasons. One is just politics have now overtaken what is a very pragmatic situation. You frankly have like a lot of people just reacting in the opposite of whatever President Trump says. But more importantly, I think we have been seeing over the the course of the last couple of weeks that parents were very nervous. Parents weren't sure whether it was safe uh, to go back, to send their kids back to school. And because they weren't sure, they're looking for health officials to say it's safe. They're not looking for school officials to say it's safe. And absent of addressing their concerns, a lot of parents were gonna keep their kids at, at home when schools reopened. And then finally, you've also had teachers unions overplaying their hands here a bit and, and, and waiting, frankly, until sort of the last minute to, to release their requests or sometimes demands for what they want in terms of schools being reopened. And that has just gummed up a lot of the process for superintendents who were, have been trying a good faith to get the plans and get the safety precautions put in place in order to safely reopen schools. So, John, before we get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of logistics, let me address a big question. Coronavirus is still out there in our communities. No doubt about that. In fact, it's trending up in a number of states, even more so than a month ago. Aren't kids going to get sick if we send kids back to school in a few weeks? Yeah, so those, those are actually two questions, I think, embedded into there. I mean, one is, should we be reopening schools when the virus is surging all around uh, within a state and within a community? And uh, that is probably an answer of, of no. It, it just seems like based on what the CDC, Tony Fauci and others have said, is that if the community spread is, is still happening in, in a wildly uncontrolled way, then maybe it's not 
the right thing to reopen schools at that particular time. There's a second uh, question, though, which is how vulnerable are kids to both catching COVID and developing severe symptoms to COVID? And then also, how likely are they to spread COVID? And on the risk to children, like most of the medical research has said that it's very low risk to children. It's not zero risk, but it's much, much lower risk. And on the ability for kids to transmit COVID to adults or to their family members at home, there's some degree of confidence that kids are not the super spreaders that many of us have feared. But that, that is still an emerging body of research. And we just had come out last Friday, a study from South Korea that showed that kids over the age of 10 do in fact transmit COVID at almost the same rates of adults. And so this is still an area that we're, we're trying to better understand, but generally most of the research right now says that they're not quite the super spreaders that we had once feared. So there's two aspects here that I think we need to get to, right? One is, well, what's the answer? But there's another one that you alluded to. And so that's my next question. How much confidence do we have in the answer you just gave? How confident are we that kids really aren't going to come down? And how confident are we in that state of knowledge about how much transmission we might see when we start schools again? That's a great question. And it's a challenging one because, you know, researchers deal with degrees of risk in many instances. It's not a binary question. And but parent, for parents, it's binary. It's that there is a risk or there's not a risk. And for teachers, it's very binary, too, that am I putting my life at risk by going back into the classroom? And, you know, part of the challenge, and this is where, again, we just had a lack of, of leadership at the federal level is trying to communicate what all these studies have been coming out over the last several months and that you're always going to have some outliers, but what are they generally pointing to? And how do we make sure it's medical officials communicating what these studies are saying on the whole, as opposed to just one study? What I worry about is that the South Korean study, even though it was a really good study and had it was a large number of people, 60,000 people that were part of the contact tracing program, all of a sudden, it just took off over the internet. And it was that that was the one study that said, no, it's not safe to reopen schools. And it just ignores a lot of the other medical research that has been coming out over the last two to three months. And we need something that kind of look at this holistically. So let me ask you about teachers. You said in the piece that you wrote for Education Next, reopening resilient schools, you know that about one in five teachers are at a higher risk of serious illness due to their age alone. How is it that schools could possibly open? And again, let me just let me just demarcate part of this. That obviously, if COVID is raging, we're not suggesting that that's where schools should open. But even when the COVID load is not quite so high, how is it possible for schools to open if twenty percent of teachers, understandably, might decide to stay home? This has been sort of astonishing. That if if one thing that was the most known in many ways for schools to plan against was the fact that they have some teachers who, because of their age and because of underlying health conditions, it would be too risky to ask them to come back into the classroom. Uh, That's like a known. School districts could have been working in terms of identifying those teachers and more importantly, helping to find other roles for those teachers. They could be doing uh, online learning. They could be doing uh, different types of online tutoring or just checking in with kids to make sure that they're uh, checking in during the remote learning periods. 
uh, but it just doesn't seem like that happened. And so as a result, like we're, we're entering uh, this final inning of getting back to school with a lot of superintendents running around trying to both find new roles for these teachers, but then also find new teachers or substitutes that can help backfill their, their place inside the classroom. And uh, they're finding that it's a difficult, it's difficult, which again, was sort of like one of the biggest known knowns uh, going into this whole crisis. John, over the course of the summer, the facts on the ground have really changed underneath school administrators' feet. So an administrator that thought in June, looks like we're flattening the curve, we can probably open you know, close to normal. That might have been understandable, but six weeks later, that might not even be in the realm of possibility. So I'm just wondering how difficult it is for school administrators to make these plans when Again, the ground is sort of shifting underneath their feet. No, I mean, I, I don't want to take anything away. I think it's been very difficult for schools. And the circumstances have changed. I mean, if you rewound the clock to two months ago, there, there was widespread commentary that said the virus would not be as, as active in the summer in hotter climates. And yet we're just seeing it just thrive in Florida and Arizona and a lot of other areas that are hot. And so this resurgence, I think it's like close to 37 states uh, right now, was not expected. And it has created new challenges for superintendents. I think superintendents also didn't necessarily understand the skepticism that parents would be bringing, that uh, their concerns, their fears, uh, and that even the best laid plans, a lot of parents were going to just say, I'm not going to put my kids at risk. And again, it's not a majority of parents. It's only uh, 30%, but that 30% is a sizable amount. And uh, the superintendents were trying to accommodate all that, and it's just been it's been challenging. But you know, as we said in the in the blueprint document and as other good guidance has, has said, is that schools just need to be flexible and and adaptable because it is just so hard to forecast and predict how this virus is going to play out. And you know, for the most part, you could boil planning down to three scenarios where schools are open and everyone can go back in as normal. There's hybrid learning, which is to do the staggered schedules and accommodate uh, half the capacity because of physical distancing. Or there's a situation, a scenario where everyone is fully remote. And unfortunately, what it looks like is that for uh, so many of our kids going back to school in a few short weeks here, it's going to be mostly online and remote. Uh, We're seeing 80% of schools in uh, California because of the governor's order are going to have to start remote. Uh, Almost uh, the top 20 largest school districts most of them, none of them are opening fully. Uh, most of them are opening up in a hybrid, but I suspect what we see every single day is another domino knocking over saying that they're going to start the school year remote only. All right. So it's not looking great for uh, sort of a traditional school year with additional protections and even the hybrid model is sort of tough to pull off in places where the state of the virus sort of allows either of those. Let's talk about the measures that schools would have to take in order to bring kids back safely. Let me ask you first on actually getting kids to school. Uh, Before the pandemic struck, about a third of students, that's 15 million kids every day, relied on buses to get to school. If districts follow CDC guidelines, buses will only be able to operate at about half capacity. That's 36 students on a bus instead of 72. How can districts that want to open safely get kids to school? Yeah, it's a great question. It's the one, I mean, at least what I've been observing uh, in 
school district reopening plans, it seems like the busing is the most challenging aspect uh, of the school day because you can stagger schedules. There's uh, inside of a school, there's ways to do the physical distancing and take over the gym and, and other sort of uh, rooms, but you're confined in a bus and decreasing the amount of students that can be in a bus means you're increasing routes. Uh, and you also have on top of all that, that a lot of school bus drivers tend to have some of the pre-existing health conditions that are in that age category that are vulnerable too. Maybe not be necessarily driving a bus during uh, during COVID. And so this has been hugely challenging. A lot of districts are trying to just space kids out in every other seat and then doing deep cleanings in between. But it is, uh, it's probably the, the, the biggest logistical hurdle that so many of the, the schools are encountering right now. So once kids do get to school, I mean, what is that gonna look like? Uh, how will students' day-to-day experiences differ from a typical school year? Well, it looks like a lot of schools are gonna be doing some sort of temperature check and health screening before kids go into a school. We shouldn't underestimate just the logistical challenge of that too. I mean, because it's not like schools have multiple entrances, they have a few. But you're trying to, you know, bring in a couple hundred students into a building and you have this choke point of which, you know, every single student's getting uh, their temperature checked and being asked to health screening before they're let into the building. So that's going to be a huge challenge. Inside the building, I think what you're likely to see are students being grouped in a class and not moving around in class to class or in the hallways all that much. They're likely to be eating their lunch inside the classroom. They're likely to have teachers go class to class as opposed to kids sort of mingling in the hallways and going into their, their other classes. And the classes are going to look different too. Kids are going to be spaced out at least six feet. But, but here again, uh, the six feet issue is really interesting because the CDC has been recommending six feet in spacing since May. But then the American Academy of, of Pediatrics came out and said, you know what, we think it's only three feet. Three feet is, uh, is it, you can still get all the health benefits. And that's enormous because that means like for a school, for a superintendent, you could fit more students inside of a classroom, but you could just see the, the just terrible bind this puts a superintendent in. If the, the superintendent goes with the American Academy of Pediatrics, but the teachers union wants to go with CDC, how does that get arbitrated? And it just creates uh, a lot of confusion and tension. And we're seeing that play out, frankly, in some schools uh, right outside of Philadelphia that is asking the state to kind of weigh in as a referee but the physical spacing is going to be one of the big issues. What about bringing masks to bear in buildings? I mean, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be a second grade teacher in charge of keeping my kids in masks. Uh, how are the masks going to play? Well, I mean, I think there's general agreement that masks are important for teachers. There's some agreement that masks are going to be important for high school students and middle school students. And there's a huge debate about how young uh, of an age should masks be worn. And I mean, to, I mean, Matt, to your point, like, are we confident that kids at certain ages will be able to keep masks on and, uh, and would that uh, alleviate sort of the medical benefit? And this is really mirroring, you know, what has become this like very deep polarized debate in the country around just wearing masks generally. And so all of a sudden, again, unexpected, like I don't think of many superintendents thought that masks were going to be the most critical issue that was inflaming some of their, uh, their parents. But now they find themselves uh, in those crosshairs. I was just talking, there's two state chiefs that are getting death threats over their recommendations of wearing masks. And so, you know, all that is just to show that there is so much pent up anger and hostility in this polarized moment when you have 
state chiefs and local superintendents just try to do their best to get schools open. And in the midst of that, you're getting death threats because the science says that masks may help uh, protect kids and protect teachers. I suppose just saying chill out doesn't work, but uh, I hope it would. I would say, though, that they do have a little bit of an ace up their sleeve, it seems. Most districts that I've heard of have an option, right? They've got a fully remote option that if parents want to choose, then the kids don't have to come to school. So even if they open it, it seems to me that superintendents do have the ability to say, here's what we're going to do in buildings. We understand if you don't want to come, chill out. We've got a remote option for you. How popular do those options seem to be right now? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, up until a couple of weeks ago, that seemed to be the plan for most school districts, that if a, a, a group of parents felt they didn't want to send their kids back to school, they would be given an online learning option. Uh, there's a couple states, Alabama, uh, even Florida, too, were mandating that parents be given that option. So that, again, it just parents have concerns. At least they have had that option. I think what's happening now is that like getting caught in all the political crosswinds of this is that a lot of superintendents are saying it's easier just to start the school year remote only, let the virus hopefully pass from this current resurgence that we're seeing in the summer, and then reevaluate a decision uh, sometime in November or December. My concern with that is that it's it's hard to believe that the virus is going to be well under control by that point at a, at a time when the flu season starts kicking in and also when uh, you start seeing the colder temperatures that seem to have coronaviruses thrive in uh, beginning. And so I just worry that a lot of these schools that are going to start remote only, we're going to end up uh, being remote only for the entire year. So the hybrid models, that's the situation where you bring in half your kids on one day and the other half another, or one week, and so forth. In terms of academic benefits, why would those be preferable? It seems like a lot of hassle to just have kids half the week when it really doesn't free up families from watching their kids, right? That's one of the big arguments. Let's get them back to school so the economy can restart because workers can go back to work. How academically beneficial is a hybrid program compared to what you're just talking about, which is sort of maybe the safest bet, just go remote? You know, it's a good question. And some of this depends on how they do hybrid. It's the same way that like how you do online learning is going to be hugely determinative of whether or not this benefits kids or not. The benefit of blended learning or a hybrid model, if it's done right, is that you're maximizing the time with that teacher in person. And so you know, the, the best example of this is like the flipped classroom model, where the lectures are watched online from a student's home, and then the class time is used for more one-on-one interaction with the teachers, for kids who need some more assistance, for more group group conversation, things that are difficult to just have, uh, even with the Zoom and even with the, some of the online learning tools we have now, you still don't get the chemistry you have inside of a classroom. So those are the benefits. With online learning, I think we just saw that it is a lot of online learning just did not work well for both teachers, but particularly students this past spring. And we, we have some amazing data that came out of the U.S. Census Bureau that's been doing these household pulse surveys. And they pulse households and ask them a, a whole series of questions. The one question they've been asking parents is over the last seven days, what was the total number of hours your child spent in a live interaction with their teacher? And on average, it was less than three hours per week. And that's, that's amazing when you think about that. 
that out of seven days, that's, that, uh, that only three hours were in a live interaction with a teacher. I think all of us were thinking that you know, during remote learning, kids were Zooming with their teachers. And it turns out that wasn't the average experience for most kids. And particularly in a handful of states, in West Virginia, it was less than uh, two hours uh, of instruction. So even the, the areas and the districts that are going to remote only have to make sure that it's not just purely putting kids onto an online website, but that they're getting uh, touch points with teachers throughout the day and hopefully throughout the week too. John, when we weigh the academic benefits of hybrid models versus remote learning, I mean, isn't it fair to say that remote learning this fall won't be like the emergency remote learning programs? I mean, my hope is that we've had a summer to get better at it, but I'll put the question to you. Do you think schools have spent the summer preparing remote options that are going to be far superior to what we had seen in the spring? Well, I hope uh, that remote learning is going to be better this fall, but I, I'm worried. I'm worried we squandered the last couple of months in not taking the steps and providing the professional development for teachers to make remote learning better. And I think it's because for a lot of districts, I don't think they assumed we'd be at this point where we are now, that they would have to be defaulting to remote learning at, at the beginning of the school year. And so I think what you're going to see over these next couple of weeks is a lot of people scrambling to put you know, better remote learning in place. But I, I worry we may have wasted uh, some of the, the, the precious weeks we had between the close, closer of school and uh, the beginning of school in order to make sure that teachers felt supported and that the, the experience was just going to be better and richer uh, for kids. John, let me ask you about resources. I've heard lots of folks on Twitter and I've heard school superintendents association saying we really need support, whether we're going to open schools back up safely and take all the precautions that need to go there, or whether we're going to develop remote learning platforms, no matter what, we need more resources. Are schools getting the resources that they need, or at least some shot in the arm, as we are quickly approaching the time when they're supposed to start school again? It's a great question, and it's a complicated one, in part because CARES Act dollars have just now begun reaching many schools. And so you have Congress debating the next big economic uh, package at the very moment when schools are just starting to get the CARES Act dollars. Uh, the other reason this is complicated is because, you know, school buildings stay closed. You, you have some cost savings in some parts, but then you have additional costs in other parts of your budget. And that, that's particularly true as it relates to a lot of the digital divide issues, that we still have thousands of kids who don't have the device and the connectivity at home to be able to participate in any of the online learning that a school is is offering. And in the past, that was a nuisance. That was a, a problem because it meant kids couldn't complete their homework or, or take part in, in some of the extra sort of classes uh, after school. Now it's just become a necessity. And so I think you've seen a lot of schools racing to try to get the, the devices and the connectivity in place to make sure kids can participate. But if schools do open up in a hybrid model, you have extra cleaning costs, you have uh, the masks alone uh, are just incredibly expensive because it's not just buying a mask one time, but making sure they're masked every single day for the, the period the school is running. Uh, as you mentioned before, the school bus routes, like if you're doubling the school bus routes 
uh, you have cleaning costs there, but you also have gas uh, and fuel and, and just other uh, other costs as well. So I, I think there's going to need to be uh, some additional uh, support given to schools to help them with reopening. And it sounds like, I mean, that is going to be coming as part of this next uh, this next, next economic package as well. I think Senator McConnell had initially thrown out a, a $105 billion as part of the starting point for the Senate package. Well, let me ask about the timing of that. I mean, for school administrators, at least unless they're going to significantly delay the start to the school year, they've got, you know, maybe six weeks from the time this airs to when school starts. Not a lot of time. Let's say Congress agreed now, hey, let's let's pass a bill with the $100 billion. Would it get to schools in time for them to, you know, apply those funds in a meaningful difference by the start of school? I, I think a lot of the ways schools handle this sort of additional surge of financing is that they tend to they tend to see that it's passed. Once they know what is going to be given to them via the formula, they actually start spending against that uh, even before the dollars have totally hit their budgets. And so schools have been making plans on what to do with CARES Act dollars before the CARES Act dollars ever reach their school. I suspect you'll see something similar too. It just gives a little bit more of a uh, an insurance to schools that if they do spend the additional money for doubling school bus rides or for getting masks, that there'll be some formula funding that'll be coming their way uh, to reimburse those costs. John, in your piece in Ed Next about whether we can reopen schools safely, the, the last section was titled, can schools really do all of this? And that was because you had a long list of things, not all of them we, we were able to get to in this podcast, that schools have to address as they get ready for the fall. Uh, now, again, holding constant the places where the coronavirus is really spiking out of control, which unfortunately is a pretty long list of places, I want to put the question to you. Can schools really do all of this in order to open safely in the fall? Yeah, I mean, I put that section in because from a position of just pure humility, we're asking school leaders, and teachers, frankly, parents too, to, I mean, to just completely reinvent the school model just to get back to uh, operational, uh, an operational mode for the back to school year. So it is enormously complex. I don't want to take anything away from that. And also, it, it is really challenging to have, you know, long papers and, you know, frankly, my at next essays with a lot of thou shall, like school shall, should do this and should do that. Um, but that said, like, when push comes to shove, we have three scenarios schools need to plan for. Like, uh, having all kids in a building uh, fully in person, which we know is the least likely. Uh, there are going to be some schools that can do that, but that's the least likely scenario. There's a scenario for the hybrid learning, and that has credible challenges with scheduling and with making all these different accommodations. But we also know that for a group of students, and, and particularly for maybe an entire uh, school, they might have to go back to remote learning. And there's a series of planning considerations underneath that. All the decisions kind of boil down into one of those three different scenarios. And so uh, I, I think it's possible for schools to be making plans and preparations against those three scenarios. But I think it's going to be incumbent on all of us to give a measure of grace because it's going to be very messy, uh, regardless of what scenarios schools start with. And it's going to be messy because this is going to change throughout the school year. 
as we don't have a great way of forecasting how this virus is going to play out uh, in four weeks, much less than three months or four months away. And so uh, adaptability and being flexible is going to be the key, key operating principle, I think, for all of us. So, John, I know you've taken a broad look over a lot of districts. Is there any advice or any perspective that you would want to share with those teachers and administrators as they really have their heads down uh, locally trying to move to the fall? No, just, I mean, an element of gratefulness that I know this is incredibly challenging. Uh, No one, I I saw this tweet from a superintendent the other day. I think just sort of kind of poignantly captured this moment of he said he did not sign up to be a superintendent to decide whether or not bringing teachers back into the classroom would put their lives at risk. And uh, it just sort of captured the, the incredible weight and burden that I think superintendents are feeling, that teachers are feeling, and frankly, the parents are feeling. I mean, I'm confident we'll figure our way forward on this, but we're not going to naturally gravitate towards the best model. We're going to have to be very intentional and, uh, and make sure we're grounding in what is the best thing we can do for, for students given the circumstances that we're in that are less than ideal, and how do we make sure that we're protecting the safety of teachers, but at the same time, uh, we're able to help uh, kids with their academic journeys as well. I'm just so, so, so worried that we're gonna just have this generation of COVID students that have just been derailed from their academic journey and, and are gonna be feeling the implications of that years from now in a whole bunch of different ways, not just in school, but also in life, and in the workplace. And so it's just so critical that we come together and figure out the best ways of making the best of this situation and making sure kids get the education that they need. Indeed. It's a tough situation. School year's in the balance, and it's going to be tough sledding. John, thanks for coming on and sharing your perspectives on reopening this fall. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, John Bailey. I also want to thank the producers that made this episode possible. That's Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, stop for a minute and leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. Thank you.